0: Meg McCabe, a certified life coach and eating disorder recovery coach with a PhD in having a good time. Just kidding about that last part. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the show. Today's guest is Tiana Dodson. Tiana is a fat body liberation coach and facilitator who's out to destroy the belief that you have to be skinny to be happy or healthy, lovable, or worthy. Through her work with the Fat Freedom Programs, she guides people feminine of center to reconnect with their bodies, destigmatize fatness, and learn about the harms of health being a measure of worth, all while finding how they can live their best fat lives. In this episode, we discuss Tiana's struggle to fit in and how that difficult journey led her from the, I want to lose weight mentality to becoming a body liberation coach. We discuss her, not as simple as it sounds, four-step framework toward body liberation. I promise you that you will learn so much from this episode and I'm excited to share it with you today. Hi, Tiana. How are you today? I am doing
1: pretty good, actually. I'm in a pretty good mood. I'm excited.
0: Oh, I'm so glad you're in a good mood. Me too. Woo. I can't wait to have you on the show. I know the audience will learn so much from you. Before we dive into your journey, because I always like to know a little bit of background, mm. I want to switch things up and ask a question that I never have asked as an Ooh. before. I know. So, my question for you is What is your mission in life as a body liberation coach and advocate?
1: Well, we're just going to jump right in. We're going right in. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. Okay. So, my mission in life. Oh, that's a big question. Just a tiny bit of background here before I answer the question, which is I'm somebody who, because of my identities, has always had trouble fitting in. And throughout my life, I've always had the experiences of never being enough of this to fit in here and never being enough of that to fit in there. And it's just, it's a painful place to be because you always feel wrong. Mm. And basically my mission at the very bottom of it when you like boil everything down is really just that to create a a place create a world where people never have to feel that where people no matter how they show up who they are what they look like what their body can or cannot do they're able to be accommodated they're able to be cared for they're able to be accepted
0: Mm.
1: that's what i want Mm. that's
0: so powerful and I love how you can connect that back to your own experience. Yeah. What was it like for you not really feeling like you fit in?
1: Oh, boy. That's a great question. We're just going to, we're just, we're done. We're just digging in the trauma. Sorry.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, you can keep it light too. You don't have to that too deep
1: if you don't want to. Oh, but how fun is it if we don't, right? I
0: know we can. (laughs) I didn't realize I was just going to go for it. I've never opened with this question before. It gets to the heart of it.
1: I love it. I mean, it's just, it's never comfortable. Like you're always, you, you just, you can't relax. You can never relax. You can never go into a space and be like, I belong here, you never have that feeling. And so you are always performing, you're always looking for clues and like hints of how you should be presenting yourself so that you can be palatable, so that people will like you. And it's a horrible, horrible place to be. It's a horrible place to live, it's a horrible place to like have that be who you are because you have so much distance between who you are performing and who you actually are inside. And it's lonely and it's just not fun. Yeah, it's horrid. It's a really horrible place to be. And I think that when I'm talking about this, I'm pretty sure it's resonating for people, for lots of people, because I'm sure that all of us have felt this way at some point or another in our life or in our lives, I should say. And it's just like this feeling sort of like all the time, you're weird, you don't fit in and nobody understands you.
0: That's really hard. That's so hard. Oh my gosh. Could you please share like more about what your identities are to those listening and how you try, like your attempts to fit in Mm. and what that looked like for you?
1: Sure. So I am Black and Chamorro. So my mom is from Guam and uh, my dad is a Black guy whose family comes from Virginia. I was born in Philadelphia and just that (laughs) right there. Being biracial to two minoritized groups already is really challenging, like already was really challenging. And like, as I've gotten older, I have come to realize that my mom is indigenous to Guam. And that complicates things for me quite a bit because it introduces this new thing for me to deal with, which is... Are you indigenous? And if so, Mm. what do we do with that? So, on my mom's side, I'm sort of first generation American because I was born in Philadelphia. And on my father's side, just another one of these people who just happens to be in the United States because our ancestors were stolen (laughs) from their lands. And just knowing that that's there. That's always been there. All of that ancestral trauma that is just always inside of me and always with me. As I learn more about myself, as I learn more about like where I have come from, where they came from, it just, it's a Pandora's box, just endlessly opening, endlessly full of things to unpack and unlearn and relearn and get in touch with and heal. In addition, uh, I'm fat. If you didn't know, (laughs) and I've pretty much, I've always been fat. Like if I look back at photos from when I was a child, I was always larger than other children. I'm not really tall, but I'm a bit tall. So being someone who was socialized as female raised as a girl, that's not exactly the kind of body that you want to be having because it's one that sort of falls outside of the spectrum of femininity. And then with that, like not being held as desirable to a possible male partner. And that was something that was impressed upon me at a very young age. So these things are also wounds that I have carried with me and I'm currently working to undo. I was raised in a lower middle class neighborhood, and that's like so generous of a way to call it. My family was pretty much hand to mouth poor. And so that had a really big effect on what we could do, what we had access to, and how we did things. And on top of all of that, I'm queer. And I've always been. And I didn't know that for a really long time. It was just another thing that was in the back of everything, in the background of everything that I was experiencing, just adding to the pile of, why are you weird? Why can't you just be like everybody else? And then add on top of that, I was born 1980. So I'm an 80s kid, teenager from the 90s. And I was gifted in talented programs. I was in honors classes. And so I was a quote unquote nerd. So that didn't help. That also didn't help, you know, for somebody who just wanted to so desperately just fit in, you know, all of these things just precipitated and made me somebody who was just perpetually
0: outside. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking... Because I I was born with a lot of privilege. I fit into a lot of boxes that are, quote, accepted. And so I was thinking while you're speaking, if I wanted to fit in, all I had to do was go buy a shirt from Abercrombie. I did not have to. Oh, gosh. (laughs) Yeah. I still felt really uncomfortable at times, but I couldn't imagine the pain and suffering of kind of being ostracized based on things you have no real control over and couldn't even put words to that's right that's
1: right I mean and that's like the main tragedy really of systems of oppression and hierarchies of bodies is the fact that like you're subject to this the second you arrive in the world regardless of Who you are or where you're coming from. These are just the rules of engagement right now. And that tends to make people feel that there's nothing they can do about it. That all they can do is the best that they can to just claw their way to the top of the hierarchy so they can have moments, just moments of not feeling like they don't belong or that they aren't good. And it's not true. Things are like this because a certain subset of people clawed power just out of the ether and made decisions so that they could have more power, which means that it doesn't have to be this way and we can change it.
0: Wow. So, in your work, what was it like for you to discover body liberation and how did that have an impact Mm. on this? I know, I love that visual. It's so powerful of clawing your way up, right? Trying to, and then realizing that doesn't have to be the way, right? That's a made up mountain.
1: No, exactly. It's rage inducing in honesty. (laughs) Yeah,
0: sure.
1: so i I came to body liberation. I wanted to say it in a windy road way, but I don't think it was windy at all. I think it was actually relatively straight <laughs> and it started because I'm fat and I wanted to not be fat anymore. This is just how could you not want to not be fat when you are fat in a world that hates fat people? You know that was my whole existence in a lot of ways, you know? And so I was starting a journey toward health. (laughs) And that's in big, giant quotation marks. Because when I was saying health, what I was really meaning was thinness. I just wanted to get thin. And at that time, The discourse was very forward talking about health, you know, as this new kind of way of disguising our hatred of fat bodies. And so I was looking for health and I found this health coach who gave me a free session and I sat down with her and she made this connection that I had never made for myself before. And my mind was just blown. And I was like, she has the answers. She's the one who's going to finally get me thin. This is it. Take my money.
0: I'm scared. (laughs) I'm really scared.
1: So I started working with her and she was a raw vegan. And she said very clear to me, very clearly to me in one of our early sessions, my goal is to get you to be a raw vegan. And I was like, if it makes me look like you, I'm on board. So as we were working together, I don't actually think I lost any weight. I actually think I gained weight at some point, but what I did do was start to really enjoy her job. (laughs) I was like, I like what you're doing here. You look like you're having the best time. And she awoke within me this interest in nutrition that I didn't know that I had. I've always been somebody who's liked helping people. And so I was like, this is a great way to help people because number one, I'm gonna help them not be fat. And then number two, I get to work from home and I can do all the fun stuff and look like you eventually. And so when I left my job, because I left to move to Europe to be with my husband, I decided to go ahead and start health coaching. So I went to health coaching school. In health coaching school, they told me that you will experience a transformation. And I was like, "Yes, that means I'm going to get thin." You know, cuz cuz that's only what I could think about. You know, there's nothing else. I didn't care about anything else. Transformation meant from fat to thin for me at that time. But what I discovered during health coaching school was bioindividuality. So this guy who found this school was using this term bioindividuality to say that one person's medicine is another person's poison, you know? And I was like, okay, cool, that makes sense in a lot of ways. And then just throughout my experience, I started to think: hold on. If one person's poison is another person's medicine, why cannot it'd be also possible that bodies can just be different. Bodies can just be different sizes. Like for one person, it's a bad thing to be fat. But for another person, it's fine. Because at that time, my blood work was great. All of those markers that say healthy is what you are checked all green for me. And I was like, the only thing that's technically wrong with me is my body size there's a problem here. There's a disconnect. I'm confused. So I went looking for the things that the internet could tell me, because that's what you do, right? When you have this question in these days and times, you go to the internet and ask the internet. And the internet gave me health at every size. And I discovered this paradigm and it unlocked all of the doors for me. Because what it did was finally give me that missing piece, that the answer that I was looking for, which is that you could be healthy regardless of the fact that you are a fat person. And so that was where I started. So I changed my business from being a normal, everyday, run-of-the-mill weight loss health coach to being a fat health coach. So I was going to help fat people be healthy. And through that process, I started to bring more of myself into it, which also meant that I was starting to like unpack things about myself. I discovered intersectionality. I started to really realize like how all of these other identities that I hold also impacted like everything in my life. And that's when I started to kind of slide down that slippery slope of Like how do we find body love with our bodies as they are? So I wasn't even thinking about health so much anymore. I was now thinking about self-love and self-care. And then I discovered trauma. Not that I discovered trauma, I had lots of trauma. I still have lots of trauma. Who doesn't, right? But I discovered that trauma affects the body and how it does that in so many different ways and also how it could be traumatizing for people to be told that they just need to learn how to love their bodies. And so I was like, okay, what do we do now? And I just started to learn and unpack like that need to reach for that goal. Do I have to love my body in order to be a good person or to live a good life? Is that a prerequisite for those things? Just through that kind of work and that questioning, I mean, everything just kind of went on a question, right? Because in the end, I've gotten older, I'm slipping down the slippery slope of disability. I have chronic illness now. And it's like, okay, uh, I've had to like fold all of this in to my work, into my practice, into my praxis, like just to... Destigmatize all of these things because all of these things are so stigmatized. Like, disability is bad, chronic illness is bad, you keep getting fatter, that's bad. I had a kid and it was just like, I can't give this to him. You know, I don't want to continue this harm in my line. I want to stop this. And so that's when I started to realize fat acceptance is great but it's not enough fat liberation is what we need but that's still not enough because everybody needs to be free so like there's that wonderful quote none of us are free until all of us are and that's what brought me to body liberation
0: so i see now there's fat liberation and then you see body liberation as the next step because that includes All the other intersections. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It's a really good distinction there. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing your journey and how you were able to find your way down the. It sounds like a semi windy path. I can see how you would say (laughs) you want to call it windy, but it's actually quite direct because you were just listening to your intuition and following those questions. And I love how there was that transformation from health means thinness to, I'm not even sure what to think about health, but I do know that we need to reach body liberation ultimately. So it's like this big path. So yeah, when it comes to your journey and now helping others, how would you suggest that listeners begin to unpack or connect the dots between systems of oppression impacting their own journey? So taking an individual, how might they start to unpack things for themselves?
1: This is a great question. And and I think this is where people get stuck because it just sounds like such a big thing to do. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. unpacking oppression. What? (laughs) I didn't know. know oppression existed yesterday.
0: Yeah. Some people and, might be just like listening to this and hearing those words for the first time.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Gosh, like there are just so many things like just rush to my mind. But the first thing I think really is important here is to forgive yourself for not knowing.
0: Mm.
1: We don't know what we don't know. We only know what we've experienced. We only know what we've been told. We only know like the things that have been made tangible to us. And so if you're somebody who has had wonderful opportunity to live in privilege and not understand viscerally oppression, then I'm so happy for you. (laughs) And I'm sorry that you now know that this is a thing, but I do want you to start from a place of just like forgiveness and grace, because like I said before, We're born into this world full of hierarchy and dominance, and we don't know that it could be different. So, if you didn't know until I said it that it could be different, that's okay because you know now. So, the next thing you need to do is two things. The first thing is you need to make a conscious choice to undo this oppression, to do what is what normally called, quote unquote, the work, to undo that oppression and unlearn it in yourself. And then you need to couple that choice, that conscious choice with action. And that action does not have to be, I'm going to go and run for Congress or I'm going to go tell everybody I know the thing. It could just be as simple as, I'm going to sit down and think real hard. (laughs) Like that, it can be a small action, but it must be an action. And then the next thing you could do is engage with my four-step framework for body liberation. Yeah, so it's four steps. It sounds super simple. It's not. (laughs) I'm sorry. Sorry. But it does give you a sort of lifeline to hold on to while you're diving into the world of unlearning oppression. And so my four-step framework, these four steps are, like I said, they sound simple. Step one is education. Because you can not fight against a system you neither know nor understand. The second is reframing. And what you're doing in this step is you're interrogating the stories you've been told about yourself, the stories you've been told about the world, all of that. And you're working to find out if you can take these stories and change them into stories that can help you move forward, maybe give you a different point of view. So instead of fatness is bad, reframe that into fatness is And I have been told it is bad. It's sort of a language trick, but it's not a trivial thing. And it's very powerful because language really matters. The third step is self-care and resilience building. Because those first two steps are very internal. They require a lot of work, you and yourself and like your demons, but those make really big steps, really big changes happen within you. However, the world around you hasn't changed, unfortunately. So you need to still be able to go out every day, get the things done that you need to get done and not be constantly activated and triggered by what's going on in the world and the fact that nobody else understands. So you need to have your toolkit stocked and ready to go with ways to help you feel better to replenish your coffers when you need that. And then also like you need to be able to build resilience. And part of that resilience is how do I go out there and be able to do this longer and longer, more and more stamina, but also do I have a community that is there to support me and help take care of me when I cannot take care of myself? Do I have a community that I can fight for so that my eyes can stay on the prize as opposed to just being like, oh no, I've got to fight this big amorphous cloud. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And then step four is advocacy. And this step tends to be really hard because many of us, especially if we were socialized as female, if we were raised as girls and are now women, a lot of us have been taught like, don't challenge folks, be quiet, nod and smile, It's going to be fine. Just take it. And so advocacy is all about asking for what you need, showing up for yourself when you have a problem saying that. And it's a practice of finding ways to communicate as well as hold your boundaries. And the benefit of advocacy is that it helps you in that moment, but it also creates a ripple effect for those that will come behind you. And so this is not just an individual care experience. This is a community care and a collective care experience. And that's it. You wash, you rinse, repeat. It's not a linear process. It's pretty iterative. And there will be things that you will be like, I thought I already did that. I thought I already learned that. I thought I already reframed it. And really you're just peeling back the layers and digging deeper and going harder. It's great.
0: I love that framework. As a coach, I'm all about the frameworks. So that is so helpful. And I want to take it back to a few of those and just mention a few things that stuck out to me. So first of all, just the fourth one, advocacy. I love that you frame it as something like setting boundaries or taking care of yourself, like setting boundaries, advocating for yourself. And then Recognizing that when you do that, you're helping others along the way. Because when I think about advocacy, I'm thinking the more external advocacy right away, but it feels more manageable to start the way you start.
1: Absolutely. I mean, that's the thing, right? There's a lot of people, like, I know for me, I'll talk about myself. Mm -hmm. I really struggled with calling myself an activist. Mm -hmm. I was like, I'm not an activist, I'm a coach who's just online calling herself fat publicly and not ashamed of it and writing blog posts. I'm not an activist, but the thing is you are an activist because you are showing up for yourself. You are daring to say, I don't like what's going on. It is wrong and it is bad. And I want something different. That is activism.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It is something as simple as writing a blog post or openly calling yourself fat. It's like, that is such a bold thing to do yeah. in a way. And maybe in your eyes, it didn't seem like that. But for others, that's a bold step of no, exactly. activism. Yeah. absolutely. And then I was also very intrigued by the second step of reframing. And you use the example of language. And I was just wondering if you had any more examples of reframing or language switching up that Mm. people might be able to apply to their own thoughts. Because I think this is key for adding compassion and understanding into your own journey.
1: Yeah. So let's see. Some easy ones, I think, which are not easy. They're just easy for me to pluck out of the sky. Um, (laughs) There's the, I have fat versus I am fat.
0: Mm -hmm. A
1: lot of people. So I will say that I have also liked this meme in the past (laughs) and shared it myself where there's this meme going, there was this meme going around a few years ago and it might still be going around because the internet is forever where it was like, I'm not fat. I have fat, just like I'm not fingernails. I have fingernails. And it's like, okay, yes, but also no. (laughs) And the reason why is because fatness is period. But fatness also is an identity. And it doesn't matter if you yourself consider yourself fat or claim that identity for yourself. It is an identity that will be put on you by the people that you encounter because your body looks a certain way. Which means that you have an opportunity here to either claim that identity and destigmatize it for yourself or allow people to give it to you and use it as a way to harm you. So that's one kind of reframing thing. What's another one? Oh my! Uh,
0: <laughs> well, that that one I just want to say. Yeah. You know, comment on that. I feel like it is an empowering place to be to recognize you have an option there.
1: Yes, and that's the thing. Like we have so many options. Like I'm never going to change the fact. Like. I'm never going to not be black. I'm never going to not be tomorrow. I'm never going to not be these things. Like these things are things I cannot change. The fact that I am fat, that's not really something I can change either. So I can choose to either continually battle against it or to claim it for myself. Right. And that's, a personal choice of course I have an opinion of which one I think is better but I'm not you and I'm not living your life or in your body so I cannot tell you what is better for yourself and I think that's the thing that I really try to focus on like with my framework for example where you said when I said advocacy you thought immediately about big like social change sort of advocacy. And that's the thing is like, a lot of the times that's exactly what we're thinking. We only think big. When I didn't want to claim myself as an activist, it's because Malala Yousafzai is an activist. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is an activist. I, person with a blog, am not an activist if measured against that. Yet, like, (laughs) how much more reach do we have in this day and age? I mean, not even just in this day and age, but how many things have happened because somebody dared to put it down on paper, to write their words, to share their words, which then propagated a movement. And that's why I say that activism isn't only these big things. Like reframing is something that you can so teeny tiny small as an action, yet something that is empowering and can make such a huge difference in how you move through the world.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. We don't only have impact when we're doing big things. We also have impact when we're doing small things.
0: Woo! I want to give you a standing ovation for that one. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Yes, it feels so much more manageable too. Yes. know that you don't have to start a huge movement that's immediately impacting so many. It's more just by doing these actions, you can create a little ripple and that's going to help contribute to... Something bigger than yourself.
1: Absolutely.
0: I also wanted to point out so that reframe, one thing that I've heard reframes such as I have fat versus I am fat, you know, but I know when people use it in the frame of having, say, anorexia, Hmm. they'll say, I am an anorexic. They make it their identity. Yeah. Versus I have anorexia. Do you feel like there's an identity tied to I am fat versus I have fat? And now that I'm asking this question, I'm actually wondering if it's different because there's nothing wrong with having the fat identity. I don't know. What are your thoughts when I'm saying these things?
1: (laughs) Good. This is good. Very delicious. So fat is an identity. Great example of this. I used to live in Northeastern Germany And go to this bakery because they had a great egg salad, open-faced sandwich. I loved it. They also had this cool like fish sandwich that you could get warmed up. And so I was there that day ordering the fish sandwich. I decided to get it warmed up. So the person took my order. She took it back. She put it in the oven. And then her coworker got it out of the oven when it was finished went to her and said, who does this belong to? Now, mind you, I'm watching this like being pantomimed because I'm standing on the other side of the counter. So there's the, you know, like, who does this belong to? And the person who served me puffed up her cheeks and kind of like put her arms out to her side to pantomime the fat lady. (laughs) And I, in that moment was like, you know, I'm in Northeastern Germany. There are so many other ways that you could have described me as someone who looks different from other people. You could have been like the brown one, for example, the one with the big curly hair, for example. Like, you know, these two things, very obviously different, very obviously identifying. Yet the thing that she chose was to describe my fatness. Not that I'm the only fat person in Northeastern Germany, but this is just like, why did she see my fatness first? Because of fat phobia. Very simple. And that's the thing is that regardless of what I'm doing, I am an absolute fat. I am somebody who, regardless of where I am, regardless of what I'm doing, I could be hiking the biggest mountain and people are still going to go, oh, look at that fat lady. Wow. And so in the end, I have a choice. Do I want to claim this for myself and destigmatize it? So when somebody says, gosh, you're fat, I go, very good. You're correct. <laughs> or do I continue to stay in that place denying this mm. where somebody says, you're fat? And I go, oh, God, so mean. Ooh, I, I have a choice here. I have yeah. a choice. And not that I'm somebody, so I have done. <laughs> I have definitely had, do still have for sure, a disordered relationship with food. How could you not in this world? I've never been diagnosed with any eating disorder and it is a, quite a big possibility that I was anorexic at several points in my experience. So I'm speaking at this from a place of not necessarily diagnosed lived experience. I feel like it's kind of the same for somebody who has an eating disorder or who is in recovery from an eating disorder. I think that if you claim the identity and maybe it doesn't have to be an identity so much, but the label possibly, however that makes you feel, like whatever language makes you feel less pathologized and stigmatized, whatever works for you. But I think if you claim it, you cannot be chastised by it. And that reminds me of a quote by Audre Lorde, which is, nothing I accept about myself can be used against me to diminish me. I think this is so important because like, when we have shame around a thing, that thing can be continually used to harm us. Mm -hmm. But if we undo that shame, we undo a large part of the harm.
0: Yeah. I'm thinking about that in terms of those with eating disorders, because that's who's listening. And there's so much shame with having an eating disorder that turns into secrecy around behaviors, that turns into isolation, that's right. not being able to reach out for help, not being able to talk to people. So, being able to claim that I have anorexia in a positive way might dissolve a little bit of that shame and maybe be the thing that you can do to start reaching out for help and start breaking free of isolation and not hiding those behaviors so much.
1: That's right. Because the first thing you need to do in order to get help for something is to admit that you need that help. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, you don't have to turn it into, I have anorexia, let's have a party. It doesn't have to be that, but you have to be able to say, yes, it is true. I have anorexia or I am anorexic. You have to be able to say that to yourself and be honest with yourself in that way before you can actually reach out for help. I mean, in my work, I'm mostly working with people who are trying to destigmatize their fatness and reconnect with their body so that they can be at least in partnership with their bodies. And you cannot come to a place where you can be in partnership with your body even possibly moving toward accepting and possibly even loving your body. You cannot move in that direction until you can first say, I don't like this. I don't want to be here anymore. I want to change something.
0: Yeah. It's a very nuanced conversation with accepting body size versus accepting an eating disorder. Because there is a part of me that doesn't know if I would want listeners to identify as someone who has an eating disorder if it's a fixed identity and a rigid one, right? Sure. So thinking about people who are listening, I just want to make sure they their eating disorder isn't latching on and saying, you know, hey, if you identify with me, let's just make this thing last forever.
1: Right. I mean, I've also heard like people in the conversation about am I recovered or am I in recovery? Mm -hmm. And I have heard arguments for both sides, but something that really sticks with me is the people who say that I am recovering or I am in recovery from this eating disorder, even years after they've been actively practicing the eating disorder or actively in their eating disorder. It's because it's work, you know? And the thing is like, it's really a very nuanced conversation and what i'm really most thinking about is just like the form of like reclamation reclaim what is yours from shame yes and and that's the thing that's most important because that shame is that thing that stands in the way between you living your best fat life and you possibly ruining your life and dying. You know, like you can be a functional anorexic. You can be a person who is functional within an eating disorder. I think that's possible because there are people in the world who have had eating disorders for many years undetected and so on and so forth, but that's not a place you really want to be because you don't have any control. You don't, you have so little agency in that place And so basically, like, you want to find a way to get to a place that even though this is a part of you, that you're not controlled by that. Yes. That you are able to make conscious choices to do what you want to do to get where you need to go without being fully hindered by these facets of yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's why... Like the project of reclamation is so important.
0: Yes, I completely agree. And I love the emphasis on identifying how much that shame is impacting your life and if it's ruling your life and the decisions and the actions you take. And that's really the distinction that needs to be made here when it comes to reclamation, being able to think about what is causing this shame. And how do I release that so that I can reclaim my truth and who I actually am?
1: That's right. The challenge here, right, is I understand that a lot of that shame comes from I should not be having this. I should not be doing this to myself. I shouldn't be struggling with this. But an eating disorder, for the most part, is a response to trauma. This world is traumatic. Because we are constantly being told how we do not measure up. If you have turned to an eating disorder as a way to try to cope with that constant abuse, then it might not be the best way for you to be taking care of yourself. But it is an attempt at taking care of yourself and so the thing that's very important is to recognize that that this is an attempt but also try to find help and support so that you can find a way to take care of yourself in a more positive manner
0: yes i'm so glad you brought that up it's like recovery it's the the importance and the key to recovery is i identifying your eating disorders something that came upon you in your life because it was the best you could do in the moment right that's right, right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Mm-hmm. and I mean, I mean, we're just out
1: here trying to survive we're just out here trying to survive and don't be upset with yourself for trying to survive thank yourself thank your body thank your mind give that gracious uh, that gracious gratefulness thank you for trying to help me survive but I don't need this one anymore. Let's find one that maybe makes us feel better.
0: Mm, absolutely. So helpful to keep in mind. And it builds compassion, which I'm a huge fan of. So
1: Absolutely. More of that, please.
0: So I have one more question I wanted to ask you today. This has been a lovely conversation so far. This one I was really wanting to ask because I know my, my audience pretty well. Yeah. And the question is, well, first of all, many people with eating disorders are afraid of gaining weight. Like it is the crux of their life, right? There's a lot of fear around living in a larger body. There's this fear that they're going to keep gaining and gaining and gaining weight and it will never stop. These are the individuals who need to hear from body liberation activists and fat activists and all the individuals living happy lives. In larger bodies, right? Right. So what do you wish people who are afraid of gaining weight knew about living in a larger body? It's a good question. I think the first thing is
1: that it's not the worst thing. (laughs) It's definitely not the worst thing. I know that everything is lined up to tell you that being fat is the worst thing that could happen to you. And to be honest, it's not. There is a lot worse that has happened to me than just living in a fat body. But I also want to acknowledge the truth and the realness, the validity of that fear. Because it's hard to live in a fat body. And it's not because my body is fat that living in this body is hard. It is hard because the world Hates fat bodies. So that's not a shiny, happy thing to focus on. But wonderful things about my body, my big fat body, is that it's soft and it jiggles. And that jiggling is great. It's just so much fun. (laughs) The other thing that's amazing about my fat body is that I have presence. You cannot ignore me when I show up somewhere because. I am very, very visibly there. I'm not very often cold. Usually takes a lot to make me cold. (laughs) My six-year-old child loves to cuddle me. He loves to squeeze my fat belly. He loves to run his little fingers along the stretch marks that were partially caused by him growing up in there, but also... By the fact that I do have a fat body. You will not get fat and continue to be fat and fat and fat, and it'll never end. Your body knows what it's doing a lot of the time. It has so much knowledge and so much understanding, and it's not something that's never going to end. People like me are out here working to make sure that if you do join us over here on the side of fatness that your experience won't be a horrible one because it doesn't have to be.
0: Wow. It's something I know many people are really desperate to hear. Yeah. So I'm grateful for you sharing that That was impactful and moving. So thank you. You're welcome. And Tiana, it's been a huge pleasure chatting with you today and Could you please share how the listeners can get in touch with you? And also if you have anything you'd like to broadcast to the listeners about coming up or programs or anything you're doing. I love
1: it. So it's been a pleasure. I've absolutely enjoyed this conversation, especially the fact that we went there with the nuance. I dig it Yeah, we really went
0: there. I didn't expect that.
1: (laughs) I love it. So if you're like interested in hanging out with me and learning more about what I do and how I'm moving around in the world, you can check me out at my website, which is com. I also hang out on Instagram. I am at I am Tyanna Dodson on Instagram. I'm also on TikTok. And that's where I do things that are slightly less serious <laughs> and definitely more fun because TikTok is good for that. So if you're interested in fun while also getting your fat politic on, then come check me out on TikTok. I am also there at I am Dodson. And as far as work that I've got going on in the world and programs, I'm the proud facilitator of the Fat Freedom Group Read membership. And what we're doing in there is more than just a book club. It's a book club, but it's even more than that. I'm providing you the books we're going to read them together with this really gentle reading schedule. We're going to have live discussions. If you're into that, we're going to have an online community space. And basically, what we're reading is books that are talking about the fat experience from people who have actual lived experience of fatness, as well as other aspects of liberation and body liberation in general. So we're reading these texts together. We're processing these texts together. And some of this is really hard stuff. And that's why we're doing it in community so that you're never left alone out in that moment of, oh God, this is hard and I hate it all by yourself. That's what we're doing in the Fat Freedom Group Read. So if you're interested in joining me with that, check it out at my website or at fatfreedomgroupread.com.
0: Woo. Awesome. Okay. Well, I'm sure we have some bookworms out there wanting to join. So that sounds really amazing. And your work is amazing. And thank you you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. And I hope you have a beautiful rest of your day.
1: Thank you. You do as well. Bye. Bye.
0: Bye.